0: BOOK TWO, CHAPTER THREE, PART TWO OF THE BEAUTIFUL AND DAMNED BY F. SCOTT FITZGERALD. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. PANIC. Well? Anthony sat up in bed and looked down at her. The corners of his lips were drooping with depression. His voice was strained and hollow. Her reply was to raise her hand to her mouth and begin a slow, precise nibbling at her finger. We've done it," he said after a pause. Then, as she was still silent, he became exasperated. Why don't you say something? What on earth do you want me to say? What are you thinking? Nothing. Then stop biting your finger! Ensued a short, confused discussion of whether or not she had been thinking it seemed essential to Anthony that she should muse aloud upon last night's disaster. Her silence was a method of settling the responsibility on him. For her part she saw no necessity for speech, the moment required that she should gnaw at her finger like a nervous child. "'I've got to fix up this damn mess with my grandfather,' he said with uneasy conviction. A faint newborn respect was indicated by his use of my grandfather instead of grandpa. "'You can't,' she affirmed abruptly. "'You can't ever. He'll never forgive you as long as he lives.' "'Perhaps not,' agreed Anthony miserably. "'Still, I might possibly square myself by some sort of reformation and all that sort of thing.' "'He looked sick,' she interrupted pale as flour. He is sick. I told you that three months ago. I wish he'd died last week," she said petulantly. Inconsiderate old fool. Neither of them laughed. But just let me say, she added quietly, the next time I see you acting with any woman like you did with Rachel Barnes last night, I'll leave you. Just like that. I'm simply not going to stand it. Anthony quailed. "'Oh, don't be absurd,' he protested. "'You know there's no woman in the world for me except you. None, dearest.' His attempt at a tender note failed miserably. The more imminent danger stalked back into the foreground. "'If I went to him,' suggested Anthony, and said with appropriate biblical quotations that I'd walked too long in the way of unrighteousness and at last seen the light... He broke off and glanced with a whimsical expression at his wife. I wonder what he'd do. I don't know. She was speculating as to whether or not their guests would have the acumen to leave directly after breakfast. Not for a week did Anthony muster the courage to go to Terrytown. Prospect was revolting, and left alone he would have been incapable of making the trip, but if his will had deteriorated in these past three years, so had his power to resist urging. Gloria compelled him to go. It was all very well to wait a week, she said, for that would give his grandfather's violent animosity time to cool, but to wait longer would be an error. It would give it a chance to harden. He went in trepidation and vainly. Adam Patch was not well, said Shuttleworth indignantly. Positive instructions had been given that no one was to see him. Before the ex gin physician's vindictive eye, Anthony's front wilted. He walked out to his taxicab with what was almost a slink, recovering only a little of his self-respect as he boarded the train, glad to escape, boylike, to the wonder-palaces of consolation that still rose and glittered in his own mind. Glory was scornful when he returned to Marietta. Why had he not forced his way in? That was what she would have done." Between them they drafted a letter to the old man, and after considerable revision sent it off. It was half an apology, half a manufactured explanation. The letter was not answered. Came a day in September, a day slashed with alternate sun and rain, sun without warmth, rain without freshness. On that day they left the gray house which had seen the flower of their love. Four trunks and three monstrous crates were piled in the dismantled room, where, two years before, they had sprawled lazily, thinking in terms of dreams, remote, languorous content. The room echoed with emptiness. Gloria, in a new brown dress edged with fur, sat upon a trunk in silence, and Anthony walked nervously to and fro, smoking, as they waited for the truck that would take their things to the city. What are those?" she demanded, pointing to some books piled upon one of the crates. That's my old stamp collection, he confessed sheepishly. I forgot to pack it. Anthony, it's so silly to carry it around. Well, I was looking through it the day we left the apartment last spring, and I decided not to store it. Can't you sell it? Haven't we enough junk?" I'm sorry, he said humbly. With a thunderous rattling, the truck rolled up to the door. Gloria shook her fist defiantly at the four walls. "'I'm so glad to go!' she cried. "'So glad! Oh, my God, how I hate this house!' So the brilliant and beautiful lady went up with her husband to New York. On the very train that bore them away they quarrelled. Her bitter words had the frequency, the regularity, the inevitability of the stations they passed. "'Don't be cross,' begged Anthony piteously. "'We've got nothing but each other, after all.' "'We haven't even that most of the time,' cried Gloria. "'When haven't we? A lot of times. Beginning with one occasion on the station platform at Redgate.' "'You don't mean to say that—' "'No,' she interrupted coolly. "'I don't brood over it. It came and went, and when it went, it took something with it.' She finished abruptly. Anthony sat in silence, confused, depressed. The drab visions of trainside Mamaronek, Larchmont, Rye, Pelham Manor, succeeded each other with intervals of bleak and shoddy wastes, posing ineffectually as country. He found himself remembering how, on one summer morning, they two had started from New York in search of happiness. They had never expected to find it, perhaps. Yet, in itself, that quest had been happier than anything he expected forevermore. Life, it seemed, must be a setting up of props around one, otherwise it was a disaster. There was no rest, no quiet. He had been futile in longing to drift and dream. No one drifted except to Maelstrom's. No one dreamed without his dreams becoming fantastic nightmares of indecision and regret. Pelham. They had quarrelled in Pelham because Gloria must drive, and when she set her little foot on the accelerator the car had jumped off spunkily and their two heads had jerked back like marionettes worked by a single string. The Bronx. The houses gathering and gleaming in the sun, which was falling now through wide refulgent skies and tumbling caravans of light down into the streets. New York, he supposed, was home, the city of luxury and mystery of preposterous hopes and exotic dreams. Here on the outskirts absurd stucco palaces reared themselves in the cool sunset, poised for an instant in cool unreality, glided off far away, succeeded by the mazed confusion of the Harlem River. The train moved in through the deepening twilight, above and past half a hundred cheerful sweating streets of the upper east side, each one passing the car window like the space between the spokes of a gigantic wheel, each one with its vigorous colorful revelation of poor children in swarming feverish activity, like vivid ants in alleys of red sand. From the tenement windows leaned rotund, moon-shaped mothers, as constellations of this sordid heaven. Women like dark, imperfect jewels, women like vegetables, women like great bags of abominably dirty laundry." "'I like these streets,' observed Anthony aloud. "'I always feel as though it's a performance being staged for me. As though the second I've passed they'll all stop leaping and laughing and, instead, grow very sad, remembering how poor they are, and retreat with bowed heads into their houses. You often get that effect abroad, but seldom in this country.' Down in a tall, busy street, he read a dozen Jewish names on a line of stores. In the door of each stood a dark little man watching the passers from intent eyes, eyes gleaming with suspicion, with pride, with clarity, with cupidity, with comprehension. New York. He could not dissociate it now from the slow, upward creep of this people. The little stores, growing, expanding, consolidating, moving, Watched over with hawk's eyes and a bee's attention to detail. They slathered out on all sides. It was impressive. In perspective, it was tremendous. Gloria's voice broke in with strange appropriateness upon his thoughts. I wonder where Bleakman's been this summer. The Apartment After the sureties of youth, there sets in a period of intense and intolerable complexity. With the soda-jerker this period is so short as to be almost negligible. Men higher in the scale hold out longer in the attempt to preserve the ultimate niceties of relationship, to retain impractical ideas of integrity. But by the late twenties the business has grown too intricate, and what has hitherto been imminent and confusing has become gradually remote and dim. Routine comes down like twilight on a harsh landscape softening it until it is tolerable. The complexity is too subtle, too varied. The values are changing utterly with each lesion of vitality. It has begun to appear that we can learn nothing from the past with which to face the future. So we cease to be impulsive, convincible men, interested in what is ethically true, by fine margins we substitute rules of conduct for ideas of integrity, we value safety above romance, we become, quite unconsciously, pragmatic. It is left to the few to be persistently concerned with the nuances of relationships, and even this few only in certain hours especially set aside for the task. Anthony Patch has ceased to be an individual of mental adventure, of curiosity, and had become an individual of bias and prejudice, with a longing to be emotionally undisturbed. This gradual change had taken place through the past several years, accelerated by a succession of anxieties preying on his mind. There was, first of all, the sense of waste, always dormant in his heart, now awakened by the circumstances of his position. In his moments of insecurity, he was haunted by the suggestion that life might be, after all, significant. In his early twenties, the conviction of the futility of effort, of the wisdom of abnegation, had been confirmed by the philosophies he had admired as well as by his association with Mari Noble, and later with his wife. Yet there had been occasions, just before his first meeting with Gloria, for example, and when his grandfather had suggested that he should go abroad as a war correspondent, upon which his dissatisfaction had driven him almost to a positive step. One day, just before they left Marietta for the last time, in carelessly turning over the pages of a Harvard alumni bulletin, he had found a column which told him what his contemporaries had been about in this six years since graduation. Most of them were in business, it was true, and several were converting the heathen of China or America to a nebulous Protestantism. But a few, he found, were working constructively at jobs that were neither sinecures nor routines. There was Calvin Boyd, for instance, who, though barely out of medical school, had discovered a new treatment for typhus, had shipped abroad, and was mitigating some of the civilization that the Great Powers had brought to Servia. There was Eugene Bronson, whose articles in The New Democracy were stamping him as a man with ideas transcending both vulgar timeliness and popular hysteria. There was a man named Daly, who had been suspended from the faculty of a righteous university for preaching Marxian doctrines in the classroom. In art, science, politics he saw the authentic personality of his time emerging. There was even Severance, the quarterback, who had given up his life rather neatly and gracefully with the foreign legion on the end. He laid down the magazine and thought for a while about these diverse men. In the days of his integrity he would have defended his attitude to the last. An epicurus in nirvana, he would have cried that to struggle was to believe, to believe was to limit. He would as soon have become a churchgoer because the prospect of immortality gratified him, as he would have considered entering the leather business because the intensity of the competition would have kept him from unhappiness. But at present he had no such delicate scruples. This autumn, as his twenty-ninth year began, he was inclined to close his mind to many things, to avoid prying deeply into motive and first causes, and mostly to long passionately for security from the world and from himself. He hated to be alone. As has been said, he often dreaded being alone with Gloria. Because of the chasm which his grandfather's visit had opened before him, and the consequent revulsion from his late mode of life, It was inevitable that he should look around in this suddenly hostile city for the friends and environments that had once seemed the warmest and most secure. His first step was a desperate attempt to get back his old apartment. In the spring of 1912 he had signed a four-year lease at seventeen hundred a year with the option of renewal. This lease had expired the previous May. When he had first rented the rooms they had been mere potentialities, scarcely to be discerned as that. But Anthony had seen into these potentialities, and arranged in the lease that he and the landlord should each spend a certain amount in improvements. Rents had gone up in the past four years, and last spring, when Anthony had waived his option, the landlord, a Mr. Soenberg, had realized that he could get a much bigger price for what was now a prepossessing apartment. Accordingly, when Anthony approached him on the subject in September, he was met with Soenberg's offer of a three-year lease at twenty-five hundred a year. This, it seemed to Anthony, was outrageous. It meant that well over a third of their income would be consumed in rent. In vain he argued that his own money, his own ideas on the repartitioning, had made the rooms attractive. In vain he offered two thousand dollars, twenty-two hundred, though they could ill afford it. Mr. Soenberg was obdurate. It seemed that two other gentlemen were considering it. Just that sort of an apartment was in demand for the moment, and it would scarcely be business to give it to Mr. Patch. Besides, though he had never mentioned it before, several of the other tenants had complained of noise during the previous winter, singing and dancing late at night, that sort of thing. Internally raging, Anthony hurried back to the Ritz to report his discomfiture to Gloria. "'I can just see you,' she stormed, letting him back you down. What could I say? You could have told him what he was. I wouldn't have stood it. No other man in the world would have stood it. You just let people order you around and cheat you and bully you and take advantage of you as if you were a silly little boy. It's absurd. Oh, for heaven's sake, don't lose your temper. I know, Anthony, but you are such an ass. Well, possibly. Anyway, we can't afford that apartment. But we can afford it better than living here at the Ritz. "'You were the one who insisted on coming here.' "'Yes, because I knew you'd be miserable in a cheap hotel. "'Of course I would. "'At any rate, we've got to find a place to live.' "'How much can we pay?' she demanded. "'Well, we can pay even his price if we sell more bonds. "'But we agreed last night that, until I had gotten something definite to do, "'we—' "'Oh, I know all that. "'I asked you how much we can pay out of just our income.' They say you ought not to pay more than a fourth. How much is a fourth? One hundred and fifty a month. Do you mean to say we've got only six hundred dollars coming in every month? A subdued note crept into her voice. Of course. Do you think we've gone on spending more than twelve thousand a year without cutting way into our capital? I knew we'd sold bonds, but have we spent that much a year? How did we? Her awe increased. Oh, I'll look in those careful account-books we kept," he remarked ironically, and then added, Two rents a good part of the time. Clothes, travel. Why, each of those springs in California cost about four thousand dollars. That darned car was an expense from start to finish. and parties and amusements and—oh, one thing or another. They were both excited now, and inordinately depressed. The situation seemed worse in the actual telling Gloria than it had been when he had first made the discovery himself. "'You've got to make some money,' she said suddenly. "'I know it. And you've got to make another attempt to see your grandfather. I will. When? When we get settled.' This eventuality occurred a week later. They rented a small apartment on 57th Street at one hundred and fifty a month. It included bedroom, living-room, kitchenette and bath, in a thin, white-stone apartment house, and though the rooms were too small to display Anthony's best furniture, they were clean, new, and, in a blonde and sanitary way, not unattractive. Bounce had gone abroad to enlist in the British Army, and in his place they tolerated rather than enjoyed the services of a gaunt, big-boned Irishman, whom Gloria loathed because she discussed the glories of Sinn Féin as she served breakfast but they vowed they would have no more japanese and english servants were for the present hard to obtain like bounds the woman prepared only breakfast their other meals they took at restaurants and hotels what finally drove anthony post haste up to terrytown was an announcement in several new york papers that adam patch the multimillionaire the philanthropist the venerable uplifter was seriously ill and not expected to recover The kitten." Anthony could not see him. The doctor's instructions were that he was to talk to no one, said Mr. Shuttleworth, who offered kindly to take any message that Anthony might care to entrust with him and deliver it to Adam Patch when his condition permitted. But by obvious innuendo he confirmed Anthony's melancholy inference that the prodigal grandson would be particularly unwelcome at the bedside. At one point in the conversation Anthony, with Gloria's positive instructions in mind, made a move as though to brush by the secretary, but Shuttleworth with a smile squared his brawny shoulders and Anthony saw how futile such an attempt would be. Miserably intimidated, he returned to New York, where husband and wife passed a restless week. A little incident that occurred one evening indicated to what tension their nerves were drawn. Walking home along a cross street after dinner, Anthony noticed a night-bound cat prowling near a railing. "'I always have an instinct to kick a cat,' he said idly. "'I like them.' "'I yielded to it once.' "'When?' "'Oh, years ago, before I met you.' "'One night between the acts of a show. Cold night, like this. And I was a little tight. One of the first times I was ever tight he added. The poor little beggar was looking for a place to sleep, I guess, and I was in a mean mood, so I took my fancy to kick it. Oh, the poor kitty! cried Gloria, sincerely moved. Inspired with a narrative instinct, Anthony enlarged on the theme. It was pretty bad, he admitted. The poor little beast turned around and looked at me rather plaintively, as though hoping I'd pick him up and be kind to him. He was really just a kitten. And before he knew it a big foot launched out at him and caught his little back. "'Oh!' Gloria's cry was full of anguish. "'It was such a cold night,' he continued, perversely, keeping his voice upon a melancholy note. "'I guess it expected kindness from somebody, and it got only pain.' Broke off suddenly. Gloria was sobbing. They had reached home, and when they entered the apartment, she threw herself upon the lounge, crying as though he had struck at her very soul. "'Oh, the poor little kitty!' she repeated piteously. "'The poor little kitty! So cold!' "'Gloria, don't come near me! Please, don't come near me! You killed the soft little kitty!' Touched, Anthony knelt beside her. "'Dear,' he said. Oh, Gloria, darling, it isn't true. I invented it, every word of it." But she would not believe him. There had been something in the details he had chosen to describe that made her cry herself asleep that night, for the kitten, for Anthony, for herself, for the pain and bitterness and cruelty of all the world. THE PASSING OF AN AMERICAN MORALIST Old Adam died on a midnight of late November with a pious compliment to his god on his thin lips. He, who had been flattered so much, faded out flattering the omnipotent abstraction which he fancied he might have angered in the more lascivious moments of his youth. It was announced that he had arranged some sort of an armistice with the Deity, the terms of which were not made public, though they were thought to have included a large cash payment. All the newspapers printed his biography, and two of them ran short editorials on his sterling worth and his part in the drama of industrialism with which he had grown up. They referred guardedly to the reforms he had sponsored and financed. The memories of Comstock and Cato the Censor were resuscitated and paraded like gaunt ghosts through the columns. Every newspaper remarked that he was survived by a single grandson Anthony Comstock Patch of New York. The burial took place in the family plot at Tarrytown. Anthony and Gloria rode in the first carriage, too worried to feel grotesque, both trying desperately to glean presage of fortune from the faces of retainers who had been with him at the end. They waited a frantic week for decency, and then, having received no notification of any kind, Anthony called up his grandfather's lawyer. Mr. Brett was not, he was expected back in an hour. Anthony left his telephone number. It was the last day of November, cool and crackling outside, with a lusterless sun peering bleakly in at the windows. While they waited for the call, ostensibly engaged in reading, the atmosphere, within and without, seemed pervaded with a deliberate rendition of the pathetic fallacy. After an interminable while, the bell jingled, and Anthony, starting violently, took up the receiver. "Hello," His voice was strained and hollow. "'Yes. I did leave word. Who is this, please?' "'Yes.' "'Why, it was about the estate.' "'Naturally I'm interested, and I've received no word about the reading of the will. I thought you might not have my address. What?' "'Yes.' Gloria fell on her knees. The intervals between Anthony's speeches were like tourniquets winding on her heart. She found herself helplessly twisting the large buttons from a velvet cushion. Then... That's... that's very, very odd. That's very odd. That's very odd. Not even any... uh mention or any... uh reason? His voice sounded faint and far away she uttered a little sound, half gasp, half cry. Yes, I'll see. All right, thanks. Thanks. The phone clicked. Her eyes looking along the floor saw his feet cut the pattern of a patch of sunlight on the carpet. She arose and faced him with a gray, level glance just as his arms folded about her. My dearest, he whispered huskily, he did it, God damn him! Next day." "'Who are the heirs?' asked Mr. Haight. "'You see, when you can tell me so little about it--" Mr. Haight was tall and bent and beetle-browed. He had been recommended to Anthony as an astute and tenacious lawyer. "'I only know vaguely,' answered Anthony. "'A man named Shuttleworth, who is a sort of pet of his, has a whole thing in charge as administrator or trustee or something all except the direct bequest to charity and the provisions for servants and for those two cousins in Idaho." "'How distant are the cousins? Oh, third or fourth, anyway. I never even heard of them.' Mr. Haight nodded comprehensively. "'And you want to contest a provision of the will?' "'I guess so,' admitted Anthony, helplessly. "'I want to do what sounds most hopeful. That's what I want you to tell me.' You want them to refuse probate to the will?" Anthony shook his head. "'You've got me. I haven't any idea what probate is. I want a share of the estate.' "'Suppose you tell me some more details. For instance, do you know why the testator disinherited you?' "'Why, yes,' began Anthony. "'You see, he was always a sucker for moral reform and all that.' "'I know.' interjected Mr. Haight humorlessly. And I don't suppose he ever thought I was much good. I didn't go into business, you see. But I feel certain that up to last summer I was one of the beneficiaries. We had a house out in Marietta, and one night Grandfather got the notion he come over and see us. It just happened that there was a rather gay party going on and he arrived without any warning. Well, he took one look he and this fellow Shuttleworth, and then turned around and tore right back to Terrytown. After that he never answered my letters or even let me see him. He was a Prohibitionist, wasn't he? He was everything. Regular religious maniac. How long before his death was the will made that disinherited you? Recently, I mean since August. And you think that the direct reason for his not leaving you the majority of the estate was his displeasure with your recent actions?" Yes. Mr. Haight considered. Upon what grounds was Anthony thinking of contesting the will? Why, isn't there something about evil influence? Undue influence is one ground, but it's the most difficult you would have to show that such pressure was brought to bear so that the deceased was in a condition where he disposed of his property contrary to his intentions." Well, suppose this fellow Shuttleworth dragged him over to Marietta just when he thought some sort of a celebration was probably going on. That wouldn't have any bearing on the case. There's a strong division between advice and influence. You'd have to prove that the secretary had a sinister intention. I'd suggest some other grounds. A will is automatically refused probate in case of insanity, drunkenness, here Anthony smiled, or feeble mindedness through premature old age. But, objected Anthony, his private physician, being one of the beneficiaries, would testify that he wasn't feeble minded, and he wasn't. As a matter of fact, he probably did just what he intended to with his money. It was perfectly consistent with everything he'd ever done in his life. Well, you see, feeble-mindedness is a great deal like undue influence. It implies that the property wasn't disposed of as originally intended. The most common ground is duress, physical pressure. Anthony shook his head. Not much chance on that, I'm afraid. Undue influence seems best to me. After more discussion so technical as to be largely unintelligible to Anthony, he retained Mr. Hayde as counsel. The lawyer proposed an interview with Shuttleworth, who, jointly with Wilson, Hymer, and Hardy, was executor of the will. Anthony was to come back later in the week. It transpired that the estate consisted of approximately forty million dollars. The largest bequest to an individual was of one million, to Edward Shuttleworth, who received an additional thirty thousand a year salary as administrator of the thirty million dollar trust fund, left to be doled out to various charities and reform societies practically at his own discretion. The remaining nine millions were proportioned among two cousins in Idaho and about twenty-five other beneficiaries—friends, secretaries, servants, and employees—who had, at one time or another, earned the seal of Adam Patch's approval. At the end of another fortnight, Mr. Haight, on a retainer's fee of $15,000, had begun preparations for contesting the will. The End of Book Two, Chapter Three, Part Two